Well, hello, everyone. Welcome once again to After Further Review with Mark Ferrer and John Pelkey. Our producer, Jeff Taylor, joins us as always as well. If you're watching us on YouTube, hello. This was Mark's idea. Hello. If, yes. uh, <laughs> if John agreed to it. If you're listening we, to we us on podcast. We had a meeting. I was, it was presented to me as a unilateral decision. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, again, thanks for joining us. We greatly appreciate it for our, what is our fifth deep dive? Deep dive five. Deep dive five. All right. On the year Roman nine. numeral. I've been doing Roman. Sorry about that. I'm no, that's Ro- Roman numerals as opposed to uh, Greek digits or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Are you drunk? It, it's already. Let's just of get course. it out of the way because you don't. It's my deep dive. So I got all this stuff. So all you have to do yeah, is I got, make some sort of. You should be quippy boy throughout the entire thing. That's right. Quip I've been every drinking since, since 4 a.m. Wow, good for yeah. you! And you were yeah. up till you were up till 2:30 arguing on Facebook. I was I was I was, <laughs> was, was, was part of that till about 12. Highly reasonable. I was I was I was doing my best to be highly See, reasonable. I don't think that's true, Mark. I think sometimes you're highly reasonable because you know that'll continue the discussion longer, and you just kind of it's like me watching cops. It's just like I, I just watch it and I go, "Thank God I'm not." any of these people who are being arrested I, I, and you I, you do that and you go thank god i'm not any of these people posting this but let's keep it going it's entertaining as all hell i see again again i actually was trying to wrap everything up and, and i don't think there's anything i do john that you don't ascribe some sort of cynical evil sinister uh, ulterior motive that's motive what, I, exactly. I should call you there's Sam, nothing because there's I always do. a sinister ulterior motive to everything that you do Right. That's just it's, that's it's, just un, un, unbelievable. And yet for 20 plus years, 21 years, you, you still choose to work with this sinister, evil, you know. Yeah, I don't uh, care. Ulterior motive guy. I'm a horrible person. He's a glad that I'm a horrible person. He's so a whatever. Glad. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, yeah. Whatever. I, you know, and, and you laugh at my and you generally laugh at my jokes and, you know, you're I do laugh one, at your so. jokes. I yeah, do. you do. All right. Before we jump into 1941, the last the last year of peace. Seems like it needs to be said that way. Uh, it, it should be said that way. And in the background, uh, sing, sing, sing should be playing constantly. Uh, which that should be the next, maybe the next level to this, John, is a little music. Gene Krupa. A little, under, little underscore for a uh, certain, to, set the, to set the tone of the story. I thought you meant you wanted to do music deep dive next time, which Ooh. honestly, that would write up all of our alleys with that. That'd be great if we do classic albums uh, deep dive. I'm all for that. Uh, but before we jump into it, uh, there are sports going on. The NBA got back underway over Disney. Looks terrific. Seems like things are think things are going well over there. Um, Major League Baseball has another outbreak with the Cardinals that's caused a, 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 a game to be postponed, but seems like a smaller outbreak. Looks like they're going to be able to navigate through it. We're still not 100% sure. At least I'm not with what's going on with the Marlins. Um, yeah, anything... Anything new that you picked up on uh, prior to coming on today? No, I mean, I, I think what they're trying to do is uh, contain everything as it happens. And it didn't seem like it was obviously, I don't think anything's going to rival what the Marlins has been. What, how, many, uh, how many of the players and coaches and staff have tested positive now, John? 126. So I don't think it'll get that close. Yeah. I don't think it'll get that close. I think it's up to but, 18, uh, actually. Is what I, do, I do love the idea of the seven-inning games to try yeah. and make up. Double headers. It, it's, a, it's an agile response. 
And to me, that's what's going to have to happen because this is all brand new territory. Everyone's hacking through the jungle with a machete. There are no paths already cleared. So uh, I think I like that. I like that. And we'll see how many dominoes fall, which is your favorite thing to say every time you post something with with a good friend of ours, Riley Claremont and me. You, you, you post. I just post an article and then just says dominoes and then just say dominoes. It's like at some point in time, I'm I'm wondering when Saigon's going to fall. <laughs> I do have you an know, update on the Marlins. Yeah. What's the latest? The, so they are splitting the team up. The, the sick players are going to stay home. They're going to travel to Baltimore to start okay. that series. And they're going to be joined by the next crop of players to replace the infected players. Okay. That is the plan as of right now. So we'll see All if right. that happens. There you go. You, I think I, it's 16 from... rostered players that are going to be quarantining. Okay. All right. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, and, and it's a perfect organization to dip down into those other 30 that they have on the, on the rosters at, of the total of 60 that they were uh, allowed to bring into the top because, you know, it was going to be that year anyway for the Marlins. The, they were going to tank. They were going to try out all kinds of talent. And uh, now they get a perfect excuse to do that. The article I read said, all right, so uh, is there any way that the Marlins can play somewhere else? <laughs> Maybe it's time to start <laughs> right. choosing different places for some of these teams. You know, like the Rangers, the and Astros, honestly, the Marlins. I just keep thinking the way you said that, Jeff, is that if, if you had on your bingo card, break up the Marlins, that would not have been what I would have thought would have been on the bingo card for 2020. Uh, but uh, all right. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Mark. And before we and we're going to jump into this because there's a lot to go through in 1941. But I think baseball, uh, while they, they obviously weren't ready for the size of the outbreak and Rob Manfred admitted that the, the size they 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 were thinking they might they didn't think they'd get into double digits they thought at most six eight players or members of the organization uh, but they are remaining agile double headers to make up games will be seven innings uh, the runner on second at the beginning of extra innings will start in the eighth it's so much fun to watch the discussion about that on Monday I hope we can talk more about it because I've watched a crap load of baseball since it's been on uh, yeah. Brian Ascari chief of the fire chiming in free uh, Joe Kelly I watched that game in real time it was as entertaining a baseball game as I have ever seen in my entire life. So fun stuff. It's been fun stuff. And, and fingers crossed that baseball can, can, can get through this. Um, and the NBA started last night. And great. Uh, of course, yeah, it, it's amazing. how Well, fun, fun, fun stuff. And it's amazing. Course, how good everyone stuff was looks over there when we're not there. The, are you getting me on delay, Mark? You're getting me on delay. Aren't you? You're getting me on some sort of delay. One, at two, this point three. in time, yeah. I am. All right, fair enough. So well, I was. Go ahead. I'll just let you talk. No, 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 no. I got plenty of talking to do. Okay. So the thing is about last night with the Lakers and the Clippers, everyone was acting, and this, and this was great. Everyone was acting as if the Lakers lost, then, uh oh, watch out for the Clippers. But if the Clippers lost, it was like, well, you know, they don't really take the regular season as seriously. You know, that's what Kawhi and Toronto did last year. It's what they it's what they do. So I would say, though, that the average pundit, John Pelkey and Jeff, if you agree with me, let me know. The average pundit thinks that the, the Clippers have the better roster. And I, I don't think there's any doubt about that, that they have top to bottom a better roster, top to bottom a better organization than the Lakers. So I would say on some level, because of those two huge factors, I would say even though they're six and a half games behind the Lakers in the standings with seven to play or whatever it is until the playoffs, uh, that really the, the, the underdogs between those two teams, probably, probably the Lakers. 
The, the, I agree I mean, with you. I agree with you on the fact that the Clippers are the better organization slash team. And I'll say this too. The worst GM in the league is LeBron James. Why they let him make player personnel calls so often, I, I can't understand. But uh, he needs to realize that he needs to keep playing basketball and never, ever be a GM. He's <laughs> well, worse than I, I Michael Jordan. I would say I would say that falls onto the GM more than it does to LeBron James. But LeBron James is being LeBron James. The GM can actually say, "Listen, I'm the GM." I, 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 th- I think I, I think I think you're right. But would, I think these GMs are afraid of him. I think he comes to these teams and he says, "I want this. I want that." They give him everything that he wants. So they need a stronger GM. So he's not the GM. All right, yeah. great stuff to talk about on Monday. Yep. Because uh, yes. there will be a lot of that, and, yes. and Jeff, well. I'm just going to say, don't open up the LeBron Jane can of worms with Mark. We'll we only have all we'll we have four hours for this. Deep we only dive. have the rest of our lives not working to do this podcast, and we'll never get it through it at that point in time. <laughs> all right, well, let's just dive into it, shall we? The year in sports, 1941, the last year of peace. Not a full year, obviously, uh, as uh, Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, we'll end peace for the United States. But it, but it is a magical year, really, in sports. And it is the last year, Mark, how many documentaries have you and I seen where they, they refer to as the last innocent year, 1941. Yep. And take a look at that picture, folks. It was pastoral then. <laughs> That's the America. That's, That's the America that we always refer to when talking about, you know, traditional yes. values. If you're, if you're listening to the podcast, it's basically a swing at dusk in some sort of flyover state. That's what it is. All right. So the last year of peace, Franklin Roosevelt is elected to an unprecedented third term in the fall of 1940. He'll be sworn in in, um, I believe, March of 40. I think that for that one, they were still swearing them in in March. He'll also throw out the opening pitch for the Washington Senators in 1941 he'll call it he calls it his ninth year in the majors so uh there there is franklin roosevelt um 1940 the new york yankees had an off year uh they finished third two games behind uh detroit cleveland there uh, cleveland was one game back they'd finished first 36 through 39 and won the series in each and every one of those years. So down year for the New York Yankees, Mark, as you know, I mean, they were the marquee franchise in any sport down year for the Yankees was something that people talked about. Well, again, remember folks, the Yankees uh, have had uh, spurts of dominance and dynastic, uh, you know, a, a dynastic history. They didn't win anything until the twenties. And then they won one, I think in the early twenties. And of course it was murderers row late twenties. Right. And, and then they won a couple more. And then there was about a three year dry period until right. Joe DiMaggio shows up in 1936. And then they win three in a row, John. Right. And it, and, and at that point in time, everyone had forgotten all the struggles that the Yankees had just to get to their first world series in the twenties. And, and then all of the problems that happened in the mid thirties before Joe DiMaggio got there, and they're re- they're already complaining by nineteen forty, you know, about the team, about DiMaggio, about everything else. It's hilarious. Well, they were managed by. Uh, well, let me let me just say this at first. To, to your point, from nineteen twenty seven to nineteen fifty three, they were fifteen and one in World Series that they played in sixteen World Series. Um, it's you know, it, as much as I dislike them, 
they it they are the most successful franchise of all time. Managed by the great Joe McCarthy, whose name will be sullied by a Wisconsin senator in uh, in decade or so. Uh, Joe McCarthy, by the way, Mark, born in Philadelphia. So a nod back to your deep dive, the great city of Philadelphia. Uh, passed away in 1978, 90 years, 90 nice. Joe McCarthy years. Nice. As, a, as, as a manager, he had a, a 615 winning percentage. Uh, he was t- 2,125 wins, 1,333 losses, 29 ties. Uh, he managed the Cubs, the Yankees, and the Red Sox. 24 years, won uh, five years with the Cubs, won a pennant, eight pennants, seven World Series with the Yankees, went to the Red Sox and had Red Sox-like luck and did not win any pennants or uh, or any World Series, obviously. They would meet in the World Series that year, and one of the reasons it made that year so special, they would meet the Brooklyn Dodgers. Brooklyn Dodgers had been in a World Series in 1921. It had been the last time that they had been there. Um, they were under their third year with player manager, which I would like to see a lot more of in Major League Baseball, Mark, player managers. I think the last one was Pete Rose uh, with Cincinnati, I believe, the last player manager. Right. Um, probably right, like in the mid-'80s. That was, uh, yeah, DeRocher uh, managed them 39 through 46. He was suspended for the 47, the historic 47 season. Sure. Though he was a, he was very, very good on African-American players in baseball. He was completely for it. Uh, in fact, at one point, DeRocher made the comment that there were plenty of players in the, in the Negro Leagues that could play and play well in Major League Baseball. And he was asked yeah. by the powers to be to take that back. And he walked it back a little bit. But uh, he was a player in 39, 40, 41, 43, and 45 for the Dodgers as well. The greatest quote possibly that I've ever heard, and it, 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 it refers to you and I as well, Mark, was said about Leo DeLip, Leo DeRocher. He had an infinite capacity for making a bad situation worse. <laughs> that is yeah. brilliant, brilliant stuff. But he now, did take over. Yeah, Go ahead. He, he, no, he was a he was a, a great manager. Did some great things for the Dodgers. Did some he, great things for the Giants a little bit later. And and harkening harkening back to to your Miracle Mets, John. He was the manager of the '69 Chicago Cubs that were in control and in first place in the NL East, the first year of the NL East, and that he ran entire season. He ran Until, him into the ground because he shortened his he shortened his rotation. He shortened his bullpen in, in that year, and he wasn't successful. However, we're going to talk about successful Leo DeRocher. He took over a Dodger team that had finished seventh in uh, 1938. They were 69 and 80, and in 39 they went 84 and 69, and they finished in third place, which was uh, for for you know the folks. For them, them bums to do that, the folks in Flatbush were, were pretty darned impressed, though 41 wow. still came as a bit of a surprise. Jumping back to how that Brooklyn team was put together, their GM was a guy by the name of Larry McPhail. And McPhail's family is is littered through uh, sports in the 20 and 21st century. He had he had sons and grandsons who worked in Major League Baseball. It worked in sports broadcasting and broadcasting. And McPhail himself was a really, really interesting guy. He got into baseball by taking over the Columbus Senators of the American Association back in the 30s. Uh, and he really was, along with Branch Rickey, who was putting together farm system uh, in St. Louis when Branch Rickey, who would eventually be, would replace McPhail as the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. 
1942. Um, he, uh, he developed the farm system branch, Ricky. Most of those American Association teams and those small teams really didn't have team affiliations. Ricky put that together. McPhail saw it as a good as, as a good thing to do. Uh, he renamed the team the Redbirds. They became a farm system of the of the Cardinals. He installed stadium lights, which he was uh, built a new stadium, installed lights in that stadium. And uh, and that team actually finished second. They had been a cellar dweller prior to that. But the real reason I bring that up, Mark, with the lights, they drew 310,000 fans uh, in the, the 1933 season, I believe it was. The Cardinals drew 279,000 as a minor league team because they put lights in. He uh, he actually outdrew the Cardinals. Right. And again, we... Everybody who thinks baseball's in trouble, go back and look at what attendance was in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. A lot of that having to do with playing day games in the middle of the week, but still, it, it is remarkable. And there were numerous minor league teams back in 1941 that outdrew major league teams. Um, here's yeah. a little story that I really love about Larry McPhail. I told, I told you, uh, Mark, about this, uh, I think, in pre-show prep. He was an artillerist. He was in an artillery battalion in World War II. And after the armistice, the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, the head of Germany, was being kept uh, in, I think, Holland, um, some place in Holland. And <laughs> McPhail's commanding officer said, we're going to go we're going to go kidnap the Kaiser and we're going to we're going to put him on trial. We're going to kidnap him. We're going to put him on trial. So they went to uh, to kidnap and they. Uh, McPhail, his commanding officer, a couple other guys, they show up and they're like, where's the Kaiser? We want to we want to talk to him. Well, the authorities kind of figured eh, it's probably not a good idea and uh, said, well, you wait here. We'll get him. And uh, as they're sitting around waiting, uh, it's Kane mutiny like with Fred McMurray and the Kane mutiny uh, where are they sitting there for a bit. And somebody finally goes, they they. They're probably calling the authorities, right? They're going to arrest us because what we're doing is illegal, immoral, whatever, whatever you want to say. So they all decided they had to get the hell out of there. Larry McPhail steals an ashtray. And uh, to this day, McPhail's descendants have that ashtray that he stole wow. from the wow. Kaiser. So they give you an idea of, uh, of what Larry McPhail was like. Uh, in 1933, he was hired as the GM of the Reds as well. He ends up in Brooklyn in 1938. He was a pioneer of night baseball, baseball on television, and flying teams back and forth to games. They had all, it had all been trains at that point, buses and trains. And he, was, uh, he really thought that the upcoming aviation industry would work really well with baseball. And he was right. They still give away the Larry McPhail Award for the best promotional department of a major league or minor league team. So, and to your point, I mean, what a legacy with his family. Yes, I mean, didn't Andy McPhail run the Cubs? He did for he a ran, while. Yep, yep. He had. Uh, he, he had. As I said. His progeny were huge in sports broadcasting, several different baseball teams that they uh, that they uh, worked for. And I believe there are McPhail's working in Major League Baseball even today. Right. Uh, He was he was a heavy drinker. So, you know, golf clap from this show. Um, He was once drinking with Red Sox owner Tom Yawkey, and they both decided that they were going to swap Joe DiMaggio for Ted Williams. Right, I saw that, and uh, they've you know cooler heads prevailed when they when they hadn't had a couple of pops. But if you think back to what that would have done 
in the early 40s, how that would have changed baseball. Leo DeRocher had a really good quote about now, now, Larry. Now, now, now let's yes. talk about that. How would how would it have changed anything? You know, in, in my opinion, would anything have changed? The Yankees were still the Yankees. The well, Red Sox were still the Red Sox. They would they would have, but uh, it, you know, it's, okay, you make a, you make a really good point about that. But just um, you know, DiMaggio generally was a guy who came up the biggest in the biggest of games, right? And Ted Williams was largely a compiler. He only played in one World Series, right? And he, and he hit two hundred. I know in but that that's, World Series. again. That's just one World Series. I know, agreed. And and, and Willie Mays doesn't have a uh, a great track record in the series. And and uh, um, you know, in terms of uh, postseason appearances, Barry Bonds was atrocious for a while until those later years with the Giants. Once he got all that going, but I think that it really is that John. It really is like the stink of the Red Sox. Well, then uh, definitely choking is is with Ted Williams and the you know this allure and this you know. Uh, mystery around the Yankees would follow DiMaggio to to Boston, but I don't think so. I think DiMaggio would become a Red Sox, and it, and they would lose, and he would, you know, might have some clutch hits. But anyway, I don't know. It would well, it would be interesting too because DiMaggio was such a um, a private man, and the New York media is rough. And, and and at this point, I think we all agree playing in New York may be one of the most difficult places to play. But but at that point, the Boston media was was. It was really pretty nasty, and they had a they had a really contentious time with uh, with Williams. It would have been interesting to see Williams with the New York media, but to your, it probably would have been a push. You're absolutely right, but it still would have been great. Can you imagine it? W- the ultimate blockbuster deal. It's like Patrick Mahomes for Tom Brady, uh, though they're both within a couple of years of each other. Yeah. So, uh, DeRocher's quote right. on McPhail is would have been Tom Tom uh, Tom Brady for Peyton Manning back. Sure, in the day. yeah, that's exactly. There you go. That's that's a, that's a that's a better analogy. I know that means a lot to you. So, uh, good for you. You're up. You're up. <laughs> Tom Brady nothing. being Joe DiMaggio you're and Peyton Manning being Ted Williams. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. DeRocher's quote on McPhail: "There's a thin line between genius and insanity, and in Larry's case, the line was so thin you could see him drifting back and forth." It was said that he was great after one drink. He was a genius after one drink, smart after two, and a complete and utter nut job after three. Well, he lived to 85, so it worked for him. I know. Pickled. He was pickled. The Keith Richards of his era. Larry McPhail. Larry McPhail. All right. That's right, man. All right, Larry. We we partied. Um, I can't confirm nor deny that Keith Richards ever snorted Larry McPhail's ashes, though. So uh, we we will look into that. We will have... Our crack team of reporters look into that. All right, let's jump into January of 1941 and the heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis. There's Joe Lewis. Um, Arguably, well, not even arguably, top three fighters of all time. Would you agree? It's it's tough not to put him in there. It really is. In in terms of American boxers. Yeah. I, I would say... You know, I mean, you, you got you have to have Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali in there. You got to have Joe Lewis in there. I mean, Rocky Marciano, Marciano in there, Marciano, Lewis and Ali were the three that I was going to say is your top three. And I think you could shuffle them a little bit um, and that would work. But anyway, uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis has a busy, busy 1941. It's called his bum of the month. Yeah. Year. They threw a lot of tomato cans at him, as they would say. He he fought seven times in 1941. See, that's just that's one fight every seven and a half weeks. 
got paid the boxing, 25 the boxing. bucks per, I think. No, actually, he made that's why he I'm, fought I'm all kidding. his bums was to keep the revenue stream going. Boxing yeah. was the most popular sports in 1941 were baseball, boxing and horse racing. And uh, Lewis wanted to keep that revenue stream going. Uh, there certainly, you know, Joe Lewis was was a smart man and the people around him were pretty smart and they could see the possibility of war coming. So they're trying to pack as much in as they possibly can because they see what's going to happen down the line. Professional athletes are not getting deferments in, right. uh, for the Second World War as they did in the First World War. But anyway, um, his first fight was against a guy named Red Berman. Uh, he was a KO in the fifth. He'd win two more by knockout, three by technical knockout, and one by disqualification. There is one classic fight in all of these, though, though Lewis did find himself challenged as, at a point. Um, he would fight again February 17th, so that's six weeks later. He KOs Gus Durazo in the second round, um, so not uh, pretty, pretty easy first couple of months of 1941. It will get uh, a little more difficult for Joe Lewis. As I mentioned, Mark, as we move into March, baseball teams are now going to spring training. Um, the very first Major League Baseball player is drafted, and he is a guy by the name of Hugh Mulcahy. If you're watching us, you're going to see a picture of Hugh. In 1940, Hugh lost 22 games yeah. for the Philadelphia Phillies, and he was an all-star. So he was Steve Carlton before Steve Carlton because the Phillies were as bad an organization as there was in Major League Baseball at that point in time. His nickname, do you know what Hugh Mulcahy's nickname was, Mark? I actually do. Losing pitcher. Losing pitcher. I, Steve Carlton never had losing pitcher as a nickname. He didn't. So he, I, he didn't. I will, I, I will uh, beg to differ with your comparison. Well, he was an all-star on a horrible team. And you're right. right. He, lost a lot of, he lost a lot of games, but not because of, of Hugh Mulcahy. He, Hugh Mulcahy was actually a good pitcher, but lo, losing pitcher appeared by his name so many times that that was his nickname, losing pitcher. He was your first Major League Baseball player drafted. But again, I mentioned during the First World War, baseball players got cushy jobs in the defense industry. And really, there were guys who served. Um, certainly, Christy Mathewson was gassed uh, in a training exercise and ended his career. The great Christian gentleman, one of the greats of all time and a former New York Giant, Mark. So I throw you a little bit of a bone there. The most successful baseball player who was drafted and he was drafted um, and went into the military in May of, of 41. He had registered back in 1940. One of the, he, I believe he was the first player to actually register for the draft. Um, he was initially uh, 4F, which means didn't have to go to war. He had flat feet, which would keep you out of the war. Reclassified in on the 18th of uh, April, and he ended up as a uh, the longest serving military member of Major League Baseball, largest. Longest serving baseball player uh, in the military. That's a, that's a that sentence just did not come out the way that I wanted it to be. And I'm going to dwell on this moment here where yeah, I yeah. where it all fell apart. Um, but he served 47 months. That's the whole point. Hank Greenberg is his name. The great Detroit Tiger. Um, he missed Hall of all. Famer. Yeah, Hall of Famer. 19 games he played in 1941. Missed all of 42, 43, and 44. In 1940, he uh, won his second MVP, the first in 1935. Um, his his stats in 1943, he had 340 with 41 home runs, 150 RBI. They lost the series to Cincinnati that year. Um, 
the team dropped to 75 and 79 without Greenberg. Greenberg is one of the great forgotten players in, no in baseball. No he doubt. lost essentially the uh, Ted Williams complained about the years that he lost to World War II and Korea. But uh, in the prime of his career, Greenberg lost for four seasons. So he's not talked about because in a sport that's so focused on uh, statistics, his don't look as career statistics don't look as great because he missed all those years. But Hank Greenberg was yeah. the best player in baseball in 1940. You go back. I I encourage everyone to go back to go to the best website ever created. Baseball oh, reference. I spent a lot of time there. And I'm sure you did. And, 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 and so do I. And Hank Greenberg, you look at individual seasons. He set the record for RBIs, didn't he, John, with 190 or something like yes, that? Yes, he did. So, you know, this guy had dominant, dominant seasons. And if that's how you, you know, measure up a true Hall of Famer, and I think that's how most people do measure up true Hall of Famers, uh, there, there's no question about that with Hank Greenberg. But to your point, Johnny, the, the one sport that does sort of favor compilers on some level <laughs> is major, his Major League Baseball. Look at Don Sutton. Right. <laughs> Well, exactly. You know, and the, and the whole thing about that, too, is football doesn't do that. And I have my issues with the all of the Hall of Fames and how people are elected and, you know, having to make a guy. Why is he better seven years after he retired than he was five and all that kind of crap? But uh, you look at Vinny Testaverde's numbers. Oh, yeah. He has Hall of Fame numbers because he was yeah. around forever. Yeah. And Vinny Although, had a couple of good. He had a couple of like decent seasons. Yeah. A couple of all, you know, pro bowl esque yeah. seasons. Uh, and for a while, you know, he was over 40,000 yards. Now, 40,000, 10 years ago, right. 12 years ago, when we kind of looked, we started looking at Vinny's test of birdies, like, wait a minute. This, look at these guys, this guy's career numbers. 40,000, though, is not that impressive anymore. No. Th- these days, with the way the NFL is, a guy can come into the league. Patrick Mahomes will have 40,000 yards thrown probably by uh you know mid season this year. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right on the year. That and that'd be that'll be well and they're they're only get through mid season. That's my guess at this point anyway. Dominoes, we'll John Dominoes. Dominoes, Dominoes it's, are falling, brother. Yeah, it's it's when Saigon gonna fall, when Laos <laughs> Laos is gonna fall. <laughs> All right, sticking around in March and jumping to the sport of professional football, which we're not gonna visit again until late in the fall. But they do have an interesting moment. They signed their very, very first commissioner, Elmer Layden, who I am contractually obligated by my family to mention I am related to by marriage. Your family that never listens to the show somehow None of them actually has obligated you to mention this in a show they never listened to. You know as well as I do, Mark, family stuff is just weird. It just gets weird. But uh, by marriage, I am uh, related to to Elmer Layden, who uh, is not famous for being the first commissioner of the National Football League, nor is he famous for calling for the National Anthem to continue to be played at the beginning of games following World War II. That was something that started in World War II. It hadn't happened before. It had happened, I guess, a couple of times during the First World War, just uh, you know, out of nowhere. But it, he was the one who called for teams to continue doing that. So, I, I you know, blame him. Yep, it's the NFL. Blame the NFL is always at the center of this damn thing. Blame him. But that's not why he's famous. He's famous because he was one of Notre Dame's four horsemen, uh, made famous by Grantland Rice, and I was going to read the Grant Lone Rice quote because it's just so beautiful, but I just don't really have time. I, I ask you to to go check it out. The Grant Lone Rice quote about the four horsemen of Notre Dame, still considered one of the great backfields of all time. But Elmer Layden was one of those guys. And uh, there's the only Notre Dame reference throughout the rest of the show, Mark. Would you like to and take Elmer a Elmer Layden, 
<laughs> That's really good. But it's nice, though. It's nice we have at least one Notre Dame reference yep. in there in the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's just uh, remarkable. And that's uh, if you're if you're watching the uh, the YouTube, you have a picture of him up there. But Elmer Layden, I believe, John, was only 38 years old yep. when he was tasked to be the commissioner of the National Football League in 1941. So and he was, uh, quite, and he, a, and he, quite a career. Yeah, and he got he got really good marks because he navigated uh, the NFL through World War II, and right. a l- lot of things that the if people may not know. Uh, the Steelers and the Eagles merged to play as the Steagles, I believe, in 42, 43, or forty three and forty four. What a name! See, <laughs> uh, it's third on the list of what the uh, the Washington football team may be named uh, come next year. The Steagles, Steagles, as a like, ah, makes no makes no sense right. whatsoever. All right, moving moving forward in March, uh, Franklin Roosevelt send, signs lend lease. Uh, Google it, people. It, it's a big, big moment uh, prior to the second. It, World it War. is a big moment for the for the Brits because they need our help in a huge way at that. Yeah, point. Yeah, because they're really fighting the Axis on their own at this point. They in time. really are. They they were holding down the fort for a long, long time before we, uh, you know, lumbered in. And Len Lee's basically uh, said that we would lend them lend them uh, materials uh, for the war, uh, weapons and, and the like, and that we would get leases on British. Um, British ports around the world so that the U.S. Navy could use those ports. So that, uh, again, the 11th of March, 1941. Ten days later, Joe Lewis is going to fight because, hell, it's been, what, a couple of hours. So you might as well you might as well get it on again. Uh, gets taken 13 rounds, technical knockout a guy by, uh, by a guy by the name of Abe Simon. And uh, Abe Simon... Not famous for the fact that he took Joe Lewis 13 rounds, but Abe Simon famous because he became an actor, as many of these boxers did. It's very odd to me, Mark. Outside of Joe Lewis. Yeah, but he was in both Requiem for Heavyweight and on the waterfront. Man, Abe. Now, Abe was a pretty good boxer. John he was going that far with Joe Lewis. I mean, I think he had he came in there as a as a bona fide he was Contender. yeah. When he, when you say you know we call everybody bums uh, that, that that he played they they weren't they obviously weren't all bums uh, there there were a couple of guys there and I mean as we go through you'll see the the knockout I read I read a little bit about that fight and I think they the judges gave him three or four of the rounds he did yeah yeah so yeah and, and a lot of a lot of people think that you know Lewis was taking a paycheck through then because he he knew he was probably going to end up in the military, but he does have a, a couple of tough fights. You're right. Abe Simon, future star of on the waterfront, uh, you know, supporting and on the waterfront and Requiem for, does he, heavy- does he, uh, does he stay alive in, uh, on the waterfront? I believe he does. Okay. I believe he does. Yeah. A lot of boxers playing those, uh, those guys down around the wharves, those dock guys, those dock workers. Yeah. A lot, a lot yeah. of boxers down there. A lot of boxers. So yep. Abe, check Abe it out Simon, folks. Yes, it's great. almost a seventy-year-old reference, but who cares? Yeah, whatever. That's well. That's the show. That's what that's we the have. Show. I mean, the show's right. an eighty-year-old reference. Just the entire con- t- context of it's this dive with hundred-year-old hosts. So there you go. <laughs> All right, moving forward to the month of April. The month of April on the eighth of April, which is uh, like eighteen days later, Joe Lewis fights again. By the way, great. He fights Tony Musto. And gets a TKO in the ninth. Uh, I got nothing on Tony Musto, so we're not going to talk anymore about it. Uh, on the twelfth, four days later, Boston Bruins beat the Detroit Red Wings four to nothing to win their third Stanley Cup. Uh, it is the first ever four zero sweep in a seven game series. Wow, 
Yep. How about All that? Right. So 1941 was just full of stuff. Um, only eight teams in uh, in the NHL. Excuse me, six teams six, in the NHL. Yeah, the there original six, six. Yeah, in the NHL. Uh, so a couple of things there. Uh, much easier to win a championship and sure. much harder much harder to make a team. So those are the, those are the right. two things. There are numerous members of the Vancouver Canucks who would not have made the 1941 Boston Bruins. Right. There's um, no no question. Even actually, even with uh, heightened nutrition and fitness practices. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, just just wouldn't happen. Uh, also, uh, then too, they they had no masks. They had no helmets. No, the sticks were weren't the sticks sawed off and sharp like knives. I mean, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, people they, they, there were no, they were just like knives, knives, right? They were just knives, and I'm and they didn't even play on ice. I think it was sawdust back then. So it was just a, it was a bizarre it was a bizarre scene. Um, strange, and, very strange. And, we sh- and we shan't talk any more about no, it. No, it was very very tough time. Uh, by by the that way, five, five days later, the uh, the slow disintegration of a former American hero does continue. On the seventeenth of April, uh, uh, Charles Lindbergh goes full America first for the first uh, time. I mean, it, it had been pretty obvious, but by by April of uh, by April of forty one, he's just a full on America firster. It's 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 really a sad story. It's 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 a tragic story of the fall of an American hero. We'll revisit Lindy in a bit. And uh, quote him just so we can destroy him in everybody's eyes. Well, it, it's just so weird. By that point in time, you know, by that point in time, by April, I guess there were there were a few that were still holding out. I mean, the our our ambassador to Britain for crying out loud, right? Joe was Kennedy hold, was holding out. Yeah, the father of a future president, well, future I, couple of senators. I think too. Part of it, Mark, is that they started to see that the the odds of staying out of this thing had gotten had become less and less and less and less. And we'd already embargoed the Japanese oil. We'd kept rubber away from them. It, it, it was, it was, of course, in hindsight, it, it looks inevitable. It wasn't inevitable, but it felt that way for a lot of people. So I think guys like Lindy, who did not want to fight, did not want us involved in the war. And he was buddies with Herman Goering. And there were, and he also had some, you know, he had seen World War One, and it had been a, a bit of a bloodbath. And we were only over there for about a year. Uh, there were reasons to want to stay out of the war, but it was most impossible. of the country didn't want to get into the war. For, yeah, it was about sixty for... percent um, up until the summer of forty one. Maybe it, it was starting. It was starting to turn at this point. Right. No small part to uh, Edward R. Murrow's broadcasts from London at that right. point, which kind of turned the tide a little bit. Uh, also, and some happier news on uh, the twenty sixth of April, uh, the first ballpark organ. First time somebody put an organ in the ballpark and played organ music, which is wow. just one of the great. Yeah. Uh, you want to guess they, what team? The Cincinnati Reds. Chicago Cubs. Chicago Cubs. That's the, nice. Chicago, the Chicago Cubs. Well, it's interesting because we've talked about 1941 being the last year of peace, the last year of innocence, a pastoral time for us. <laughs> and in terms of a pastoral experience with Major League Baseball, you know, obviously the the, the organ playing is is a huge part of that backdrop. Oh, yeah. And it's odd that the last year, the last year before all of it changed for all of us here in America, uh, they barely got that organ that encompasses a huge part of a narrative that we assume was happening, you know, for right. 80 years prior. 
Yeah, nope, nope. 1941, Chicago, Wrigley Field, the very first ever. Let's take a look at the Yankees and the Dodgers and how they come out of the first month of the season. The Yankees go 10-6. and six. They're in third place, which they'd finished the year before, so Yankee fans kind of thinking, mm, maybe another year of this. Uh, the Dodgers are the Dodgers. They go 4-4 four and four and then win nine straight to uh, to end the month 13 and four uh, Dodgers had a worse record than the Yankees, but they had longer winning streaks uh, generally during the season, but that's kind of the Dodgers. It was sort of a feast or famine team. They kept you, they kept you interested and then they, and then they just broke your heart. Um, but they did end the month at 13 and four and in first place. Sure. Moving, be, moving be a now. Tough national league. If you're not in first place with a 13 and four record. Yes. Moving now to the month of May, Ted Williams makes his first appearance. There he is, the splendid splinter. At this point, Ted Williams, um, a great hitter, considered a bit of an an oddity in baseball, the kid, because uh, was completely focused on hitting, nothing else. Nothing else. Had a decent arm, but he was not a good outfielder. Sure. Uh, He he could sometimes make up with with his athleticism, and again, he had the great arm. But you see video or film at the time of Ted Williams – between pitches out there as opposed to watching the batteries out there practicing his swing because uh, he said he wanted to be the greatest hitter of all time. Uh, he was a good hitter by the end of May. Uh, he was hitting 308, but that would be his lowest batting average of the year. Excuse me, in the beginning of May. On the 2nd of May, he was hitting 308. That was the lowest his batting average would be throughout the year in what uh, would turn out to be a magical and historic year. Uh, on the third, one day after that, Whirlaway wins the Kentucky Derby. There he is, the long-tailed Whirlaway with Eddie Arcaro up. Now, I don't know about you, Mark, but when I was a kid, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, we family got together for that and watched that stuff. Yours? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Just checking in. I well, think- and yeah, absolutely. Ours ours did, too, believe it or not. Out in California, we're burning down missions. We're still interested in uh, <laughs> those uh, Kentucky traditions uh, and horse racing traditions as well, Maryland traditions and, I guess, New York tradi- traditions. But, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget Secretariat. Oh, you know, of course I was, not. I was yeah. 12 okay. at the time, and that was huge. And the way Secretariat blew away the field in, in, the, in the Belmont – was remarkable, and of course, once that happens, you start, you know, if you're a guy like me or a guy like you, you start reading about the history of Triple Crowns, yeah. and Eddie Ar- Arcaro, Arcaro, Ar- Eddie Arcaro, Arcaro, Eddie Arcaro was obviously front and center, would always just pop up, would always just pop up as one of the greatest jockeys. We won 4,779 races in his career, five Kentucky Derbies, six Preaknesses, six Belmonts, he won the Triple Crown in 41 and 48. Wow. Wow. Um, he, yeah, I mean, he was the poster child. Uh, Eddie and then it became Billy, Billy Shoemaker. It was Eddie Arcaro and Billy Shoemaker were the two jockeys that I remember. Mark, for five I remember Willie Shoemaker, Shoemaker too. I, uh, I remember him being called Willie Shoemaker. Willie Shoemaker. Not, I'm so sorry. Uh, yep, you, you're absolutely right. But you may, have, you may have known him on a more personal level. John. <laughs> we're, we're very close. He still owes me money. Uh, uh, here, here's a quick one, though, if you're Secretariat. Who, who was up? Who rode Secretariat? What was the jockey's name for five additional points? I, I don't know, actually. Ron Turcott would be the answer to that. Uh, should point who? out Ron Turcott. Okay. Ron Turcott, a great jockey in his own right, although I'll not get that. Eddie Arcaro. You won't remember it by the end of the show. We're old. That's how it works. Uh, by the way, we're always sired by a, an English Derby winner. So in this year when England. Is that allowed? 
I thought it only had to be American. No, no, it's completely, it's completely allowed. Sure. That's part of the rules. Are you sure? Yes. Yes. It All is right. part of the rules. Uh, okay. One week later, I'm writing a letter nightly. I'm a like a letter. Uh, it, uh, one week later, they, he wins the Preakness. <laughs> one week later, he wins the Preakness, which is the right. only triple crown race that I've ever been to. I was in the Preakness. I was at the Preakness, I think, in 79, maybe. Is that 79, 80? It wasn't a triple crown year, so maybe 80. Um, in but, Maryland, uh, obviously. I yes. But a week is so, so quick. That's yeah, not, they, it's not usually a week afterwards. It's usually a few weeks. It's usually a couple or three, and then it's a little longer to the Belmont, which is the longest of the three races. Right. Um, but yeah, back then it was it was a week later. They were on the Joe Lewis schedule. Joe Lewis, by the way, had four fights between the Derby and uh, and the Preakness. He was fighting every thirty six hours, I believe, man, at that point. In man, time. that was uh, fit. But he did fight two women and a and, and a Borzoi dog in that period of time. So. You know, all right. Wasn't, you know, whatever. Tough fights, but you gotta stay. You gotta stay in shape. On the fifteenth of May, Mark. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio gets his first hit of the streak. Yeah, he hits it off Eddie Smith of the Chicago White Sox, who was a good pitcher, ten years in the league, played for three teams, two-time All Star in both forty-one and forty-two. And Joe D gets his first hit. He will not go hitless. For another 62 days. It's 406 someone might get again. But I don't think anybody's going to get 56. Now, realizing that both of those records, and we'll talk about Ted Williams in the 406 later, this was in an era where pitchers pitch, you got the ball, you're you're supposed to go nine innings. Yeah. And guys down four and five runs in the third and they're keeping them in. That would never happen again today. Bullpens, bullpen pitchers all pitch close to 100 miles an hour. They didn't have that back then. That's to take nothing away from Joe DiMaggio's record or Ted Williams because they haven't been reached since. But um, that's one of the reasons that people ascribe to those records being uh, able to be sort of untouchable achieved in, in the way. 40s. I mean, Could there's. Be. We had, uh, I think, Pete Rose in 78, I want to say, had a 44-game hitting streak. Um, George Brett, I think, in 1980, hit 390. Yeah. And um, and that's the closest we've come. And those were, you know, those were 40 years ago at this yeah. point in time. So, yeah. you know, who knows? Who knows what could happen? I, I agree with you, John. I think it's tougher. I think it's tougher with it all, the, all the specialty pitching in major league baseball you never get to see a pitcher really more than twice through the lineup and you know normally a pitcher doesn't pitch too much more than a, than maybe two maybe three times through a lineup and back in that day they would get get a chance to see that pitcher three and four times every single game yeah it's at uh it was a different game back then, but there's still just, just if, if you think about what you have to do and we'll, when we get to the end of the streak, we'll, we'll, I'll give you the numbers on it. And it is absolutely and utterly remarkable. Now, Joe DiMaggio, this was the year that made Joe DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, because prior to this, he wasn't, he was a, he was a terrific player. He was an all-star every year up to that point. He was the MVP in 39. He was in the top 10 every year. Uh, he won three, 39, 41, and 47. He was the MVP. Um, but he wasn't really loved, and he got booed 
by Yankee fans at that point. He held out for money, which was you, you. We've seen that so many times at the ESPN Club, Mark. How people feel about athletes asking for more money. Imagine what that was like during the Depression. Hey, we don't have to. We can just look at next year uh, and see what that's like. I, I, the thing is, is, is I'm not sure how he could get booed. He came out of the gate and let. First of all, uh, to, yeah, he got he had an MVP in '39. His rookie year, oh, by the way, he was eighth in MVP voting. The next year, second. The next year, sixth. The next year, he wins it. The next year, third. The next year, he wins it. He comes out, too, Johnny, with um, these are his home run numbers from 36 on. 29, 46, 32, 30, 31. Now, listen to the RBI numbers. Out of the gate, when he first gets to the big leagues, 125, 167 in 1937. 140, 126, 133, and uh, I, I, I just don't understand. The, well, there's no one that came out of the gate faster than Joe DiMaggio until maybe Albert Pujols. Right, but to your point, with we talked about the Yankees, and you talked about the murderers row. The Yankees fans were used to great players. Just so spoiled. But remember, absolutely. Remember at this time, though, Babe Ruth, who was the most beloved, obviously, and the greatest baseball player of all time. It's not, it's people don't debate me on this. Look at the offensive numbers and then realize that before he stopped pitching, he was the best left handed pitcher in the American League. I'm sorry. Let, we're just going to stop there. It's not a discussion. I won't discuss this with you, Mark. There are several things I will not discuss with you, and this is one of them. But we don't have to agree to disagree on this one. We actually agree, yeah, to agree on this one. And Lou Gehrig was only a couple of years retired by 41, um, and uh, he. Uh, he was beloved for so many reasons, sadly, you know, because his career was cut short by ALS. But uh, Gehrig was still alive at this point. Um, Ruth was alive. DiMaggio had been in. He'd had injuries. He hadn't played a full season up to this point. I think the most he played was like 140 games up to this point. So he, he, he was thought of as just another really good Yankee ball player. He just God. wasn't embraced by the fans. Unbelievable. That would change. Unbelievable. Yeah. That would change. On the 23rd of May, Joe Lewis beats Buddy Bear, brother of Max Bear. Right. Who's the father of Max Bear Jr. Right. Who played Jethro in the Beverly Hillbillies. And Max Bear killed two fighters. Yes. In the ring. I'm glad you I'm glad you said that as opposed to like at a Dairy Queen. But he, yeah, it was actually in the ring. Not sure why he would be at a Dairy Queen, but well, why wouldn't you be at a Dairy Queen? I wish I was at a Dairy Queen right now. No, there's a lot of fights to break out at Dairy Queens. <laughs> I, want and, a, I want a Dairy and, Queen chili, Dairy, Dairy Queen chili dog, and a, and a chocolate shake. That's all I want. That would make me right. a happy man right, right. now. Right, but then other, others would would uh, you know argue with that. Others he would was, take take offense at that order and and fight you. Bear was disqualified. He was having a good fight. He, in fact, he'd uh, he'd knocked uh, Lewis kind of silly a couple of times and. Uh, what happened in the seventh was Lewis hit him after the bell and bears corner men came into the ring and were arguing with the, uh, with the referee. Apparently it was, it was, it was, it was very egregious, um, but it wasn't called whether or not it was seen, who knows, but it wasn't called and uh, bears corner men would not get out of the ring. And so the referee disqualified buddy bear. So, wow. You know, Lewis on that one might have dodged a little bit of a bullet because Bear was also a pretty decent fighter. Again, it's a little unfair to call all of these guys bums, um, but uh, that was the closest. Well, that, I'm just going to the closest, but that 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 was that was the most controversial of the fights. So, 
There's a controversial one coming up too. So Max Bear, brother of Brett Bear, is that what it is? Brett no. Bear? No, it's not Brett no. Bear. No, buddy, buddy Bear, Buddy Bear, father of Max Bear Jr. Yep. Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies. How old do you think Max Bear Jr. is, Johnny? Max Bear Jr. Right now? Yeah, right now at this second. I would say Max Bear Jr. right now is probably, I'm going to say 35. He is 85 years old. 82. Not bad. All right. All right. He'll be 83 in December, so pretty close. Good job. All right. Well, there you go. So that's uh, that's Joe Lewis as he continues to fight. On the 25th, Ted Williams goes two for four, and he's hitting over 400 for the first time in the season. So he hits that on the 25th of May. He's hitting four or oh, four okay. after going two I want, for four. I want to stop you right there. Okay. Don't mind. You All said right. on May 8th, or I don't know what the exact date was, but you said early in May, he was hitting 308. He'd never hit below that the rest of the year. Do you remember what date that was? 308? Yes. May. Uh, the, the 2nd of May. The second of May. Now we're talking twenty three um, days later. Twenty in twenty three days. Yeah, he's able to get his average up to four hundred. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's the and that's that the is interesting. Torrid May, and that's an interesting thing about Williams too, because you, you if you look back and I looked at the game by game logs, that's how what a nerd I am. No, that's the only way to do it. He uh, there were times where he'd go over for a couple of days. Now, he'd get some walks in that period of time, obviously, because he, he was a notoriously patient hitter. Um, but then he would just go on these tears where he would go three for four, four for five. And uh, that's the thing that you could do. That's the difference between the 406 and the 56-game hitting streak, Mark. You can get a couple of days off hitting 406. You can have a couple of off days. You can't really have that in the 56-game hitting streak. Um, on the 30th of May, the last Indy 500 till after the war. Wow. And it's won by Floyd Davis and Maury Rose, two drivers, also the last win ever by a two driver team. Maury Rose is, uh, Floyd Davis had driven most of the race. Maury Rose's car broke down and basically he kicked Floyd, <laughs> Floyd Davis out of his car and continued to win the race. Also, should be pointed out as we're moving into the Second World War that World War I flying ace Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker had been running the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He'd won an Indy 500 as well. And that was the last year that he did that. So, again, the end of innocence, the innocence nope. that was. Yes. The Rickenbacker time at the Indianapolis embodied, embodied by Eddie Rickenbacker. All right, so let's look at the end of the May, end of May and see where the Yankees and the Dodgers are at this point. Yankees are 13 and 13 on the month. They're 23 and 19 at the end of the month. They're in third place still. The Dodgers go 17 and 8, but they're in second behind St. Louis. One game ahead are the Cardinals. That'll be a year-long battle between the Cardinals and the Dodgers. Aren't, aren't the Do- they were 13 and Three weren't they thirteen and three, thirteen and four in April? Uh, yes, and then they were seventeen and eight. Yeah, so and that's then, that's thirty and twelve, and there's and they're not in first one place. game back. They're one game back. Yeah, I know right. it, it, that was a that, and I don't spend as much time on that as I was really like to because we just don't have that kind of time. But that that National League pennant race in nineteen forty one, one of the reasons it was so magical, um, and then DiMaggio getting the hits, and we'll talk about a little bit later how how he helped. Cardinals uh, Cardinals were going to be a force throughout that entire decade, and we'll find out why. A little bit later. <laughs> we really will. Uh, Joe DiMaggio has now hit in 16 straight by the end of May. And that's when people start paying attention. Sure. 15 or 16 games in. Ted Williams is hitting 429 at the God, end nice. of that. Yeah, absolutely. He, I think his highest average in the season, I think he was hitting 460-something at one point. Um, 
On June the 2nd, a guy that we mentioned, Lou Gehrig, passes away on June the 2nd, 1941. Um, it's interesting that he exits the stage, as to my point, DiMaggio now steps up on the stage and becomes a revered Yankee, as opposed to a guy like, and I, I don't want to take anything away from him, but at this point, he's like a Tony Lazari. He's just a great ball player. It's like Tony Bobby L- Mercer. Maybe following more, Mickey Mantle. Yeah, I guess. But Tony Lazari, too, is the guy who was on that murderer's row. And he's a guy who baseball fans know his name. But he's, he, you know, he 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 doesn't reach that pantheon that a Gehrig or a DiMaggio or a Mantle ever right. does. Um, just. But he was part of that murderer's row. Team. He was. So, he, so he was. DiMaggio, though, was clearly the best player on the oh, Yankees at yeah. this point in time. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing. Yankee fans, the the amount of good fortune that they have had throughout the entire, you know, throughout the last hundred years, really, yeah, is is remarkable, not just with the success on the field, but with the iconic, iconic players that have worn the pinstripes. Yep, absolutely. On the 7th of June, 1941, World Away completes the Triple Crown by winning the Belmont. He becomes uh, the fifth Triple Crown winner of the 20th century. We've had eight since. Um, he finished, he had just a great, he was a terrific horse and he, he was, he really had a great post career too. Cause he was put to stud, uh, in France. So he got to get, you know, hung out in France, uh, picking up the women. So good, you know, good for whirl away. Well, finished, if it was during the war. That's kind of rough though. He went over a, after, after the one really transport, you know, call the Vichy government. Uh, Hey, Marshall, you know, put, Put Look, him uh, over there in France during the. I'm not sure. Hello, World this Away. Marshall's enjoyed. This that. is Marshall the Patan. Uh, we want to drop World Away off. You mind? He'd like to graze somewhere in the Burgundy region if he could, please. Finished in the money in each one of his starts as a three and four year old. He was the first of two Triple Crown winners out of Calumet Farms in Kentucky. Uh, citation in '48. They had eight Kentucky der- Derby winners through that period, and they haven't had one since '48. Was Citation the last one before? Secretary? Yeah, 48. Yeah. And Secretary then in 73. Um, on the 18th of June of that year, uh, that's the Lewis Kahn fight. Now, Billy Kahn, the Pittsburgh kid, was a light heavyweight. And he moved up to fight Joe Lewis. This was the one fight of the year where Lewis was the favorite in every single one of those fights. But this was the one where they said, because their styles were so different, Lewis was a power puncher. And Khan was a guy, he was quick, he moved a lot, he didn't put on any extra weight to fight as a heavyweight, so he's 25 pounds lighter than Joe Lewis when the fight time, but he was quick and he was very good. In fact, Mark, in 1940 was the first year in, I think, six out of, Joe Lewis finished as the best fighter in the world, and according to Ring Magazine, six out of seven years prior to that. But in 1940, Billy Khan by Ring Magazine was voted the best fighter in, uh, in America. He led on scorecards uh, coming into the 13th. So of 12 rounds, I think he had a 7-5 win on the scorecard. He was giving Lewis all kinds of problems. And it was the sort of fight, Mark, you would think you would see, which was Lewis would have a round where he'd get one of those power punches in on Khan, and Khan would kind of run away from him for the rest rest of the round, trying to get his uh, faculties back together. And then Khan would come back when he did that, and he would hit him with combinations. He would move. He was a tough guy for uh, for Joe Lewis to follow around. In fact, there was one point in in uh, in the fight where uh, Billy Khan said to Joe Lewis at the end of a round, "Hey, uh, I'm giving you quite a fight." And Joe Lewis said, "Yes, you are." It was that close. Uh, unfortunately, 
Um, Khan was reading his own press clippings 12 rounds in, and he admits it, that at that point he was getting a little bit away from what his fighting style was because he thought, and he had, he'd hurt Lewis a little bit, and he really, really thought that he could beat him. Uh, Lewis had been working the body for the entire fight and, you know, work the body, kill the head is the, is the, is the old boxing parlance. Um, and so basically what happened was Khan moved in for the kill in the 13th round. And because of that, he left his defenses down and he actually got knocked out in 13. Um, he had knocked Lewis, Joe Lewis, he had Joe knocked Lewis. Lewis down and, uh, it, it was just it's it's considered one of the great fights of uh, of all of all time. Uh, after the fight, Billy Kahn said to Joe Lewis, he goes, couldn't I have borrowed the title just for a while? And uh, Joe Lewis had a great quote. He said, you had the title for 12 rounds and you couldn't hold on to it. So one of the great fights of all time, the Con Lewis fight. They will fight again, uh, I believe, in Rocky esque in a way. Forty two. Yeah, it really was. It really was Rocky esque. All right, let's check. Uh, let's check where we are at the end of June with our uh, with our big heroes, Dimaggio and Williams. Uh, by June thirtieth, uh, Joe had hit it in forty two straight, which kept him two away from Wee Willie Keeler's forty four year old record of forty four home runs. Uh, the Yankees went 19 streak, 44 game hitting streak. You mean 44? What did I say? Home runs. Oh, yeah. Hitting streak. Willie Keeler didn't hit 44 home runs in his entire career. No, that's a good point. 44 game hitting streak, which he got in 1897. I don't believe the entire all of Major League Baseball. Yes. (laughs) Hit 44 home runs at that point in time. I don't think it was allowed. I think if you hit a home run, it was an out. You hit it over yeah. the fence. We don't have the ball anymore. You're out. Inside so the park is the only one that counted. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Yankees moved to 42 and 26, and they're in first place at this point. They will not surrender that through the rest of the season. Uh, Ted Williams goes 0 for 4 on June 40th, on June 30th, June 40th. Yeah, there. It was a different calendar. It was pre World War II calendar. It was a different day. A 0 for 4. Time. He's hitting 4. Uh, he's hitting uh, 404. Uh, the Dodgers uh, go 17 and 11, 47 and 23. Uh, they uh, that they they move into first place at that point in time. That'll go back and forth throughout the season, though, as mentioned. We move forward to July, July 2nd, 1941, 23 years before Jose Canseco and my birthday. Uh, Joe DiMaggio hits his 45th and passes Wee Willie Keeler. Um, by this time, there were over 200 journalists traveling with the team. DiMaggio was smoking four to five packs of cigarettes a day. He was having all kinds of physical problems, but you, to, to be able to focus and do what he did up to that point in time is absolutely remarkable. And he, So he breaks the record on July 2nd, 1941. Right, so now now he's the guy holding the record at forty five games. So every like hit after this, every every game that he hits safely in is a record. Right, and uh, we'll see how far he goes. Um, we talked about DiMaggio being bigger in big games, being like a big <laughs> yeah. stage. Yeah, Williams didn't get a lot of big stages, and the one that he did get in the World Series, he hit two hundred. They put the shift on, by the way, the shift that everybody hates, that everybody on the right side of the infield, uh, and. Williams was just such a stubborn guy that he wouldn't turn around and try to hit. <laughs> he wouldn't try to hit uh, in the hole around third base. Uh, but uh, he did have the signature 
home run of his career until the last home run of his career, basically, was right. in the Major League of Baseball All-Star Game at Tiger Stadium. It was Briggs Stadium back then, um, where he hits a walk-off three-run home run. Joe Gordon and Joe DiMaggio are on base at that point in time. Um, Williams has always called it his finest moment. And it's so interesting, John, because uh, Williams, I think, had some good All-Star games, really good All-Star games. Yeah. And, and Willie Mays... We, we mentioned him earlier about not having a good World Series uh, record in terms of hits or average or home runs or anything. And uh, Willie Mays often had just stellar, superb all-star games. It's really interesting. It's, it's, I, I, don't, I don't blame them that much because they didn't have a chance to get themselves to a place where they could handle the pressure because it didn't come to them. To your point, right. the big stage didn't come to them that often. Where DiMaggio had already won, had already gone through three World Series with the Yankees and won it. But you're absolutely right. Regardless of what's happening, DiMaggio has all those reporters, has yeah. all that pressure. It's nuts. His health is failing. He's smoking like a like a chimney, and he is still able. He he's just that guy. Yeah. He's that guy that performs at his best when it matters most. And you know, unfortunately, Williams in. I would say, though, in the, that's not quite fair because in the regular season, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about how Ted Williams finished the season yeah. and what he did yeah. and also the way he finished his career. He certainly had a flair for the dramatic. He, he really did, and uh, he uh, he pushed that Red Sox team in 41 to second place. Now they're well behind the Yankees because the Yankees set yeah. the record for clinching the pennant early that year. I hate to bury the lead, but uh, – and you, I want to say this, too, because people look at all-star games and say, well, it's just an exhibition. Remember, in at this point in time, there was no interleague play. They didn't see these other uh, right. teams unless they played them in a World Series. And it was a much more competitive situation. So it's not as if guys were throwing batting practice. Yeah. Um, no, got that meant something. Yeah, yeah, he hit it off Claude Passo. I just feel like when these guys have give up these runs, I should tell you who they was. He was a five-time all-star and led the NL in strikeouts. In 1939, so a quality, quality pitcher. Hence the selection uh, in the All-Star game. Yes, absolutely. On July 16, 1941, DiMaggio hits his 56th. He goes three for four that day off of pitcher Al Milner, uh, who spent eight years in the uh, in the league. That's where the record stops because on the 17th, the streak ends. Let's take a little bit of a look at Joe DiMaggio's streak. Over the 62 days of the streak, DiMaggio struck out five times. He went 92 of 223. He either hit 408 or 409, depending on who you ask. And I think the 409, the people who came up with that, uh, add the hit in that he got in the All-Star game, because he really did hit safely in 57 straight games, if you include the All-Star game. Right, right, right. Uh, he had 55 RBI, 15 home runs. He scored 56 runs. In the final 11 games of the streak, he hit 545. He went 24 of 44. The beginning of the streak, he was the Yankees were five and a half games out of first. When it ended, they were seven and a half games in front. My gosh, um, what what a run! They had a fourteen game winning streak. That was there. They had the longest winning streak of them. That uh, Dodgers had a few longer ones. Uh, the, uh, not longer, but had a few long ones. Um, more long streaks during the season. The Yankees were fourteen game winning streak. They won 17 of 18 between, uh, between the 28th of June and the 17th of July. 
it's it, it, the, the numbers are boggling. And then when you think about the fact that he took that day off and then he hit in 16 straight games following wow. that, he wow. hit safely in 72 of 73 games. Yeah, that, it's it, it's one of the most it's one of the most remarkable seasons of all time. It really is. And to your point, we, uh, the closest since in 1987, Paul Molitor hit 39. Uh, Pete Rose came the closest in 78. He hit 44 in the 21st century. Only two guys have even sniffed it. Uh, Luis Castillo in 2002 and Chase Utley in 2006 hit in 35. That's 21 games short. Yeah, yeah. And 35 is remarkable. But yeah, 56. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, on the 17th, when they uh, when the streak does come to an end, Ted Williams has an off day. In fact, he has the off day on the 17th and the 18th. Um, he pinch hits in the front end of a double header um, on the 19th in the 12-8 loss to the Browns. Uh, the back end, he... Uh, on the back end of that, he goes 0 for 1 with a walk. His average dip, dips to 393. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yep. Boston's 45 and 40. They're only three games out. During the streak, DiMaggio hit 408 or 409, depending on who you ask. I could not figure which because it said every different. I should go with baseball reference, which is 408. But then I read in books yeah. I was reading 409. Williams hit 412 in that period of time. Well, you can take the at-bats, and you can take the hits, and you can find out the exact average. You, you can, but, I mean, Dude, honestly, I mean, God, you have I mean, a calculator on your phone. <laughs> it takes I failed you, 15 haven't I? seconds. I have failed you in trying to do this deep dive. I'd like to apologize to everyone involved for my lack of commitment. I read two books. I read two flipping books. It's good. I'm to glad. do this. Dodgers well, I, have I, just got, I just got my book in, by the way. For the next deep dive, we'll get to that in a second. Oh, I don't even know what it is. And you, I don't think you told me. I don't, don't, don't tell me. I don't want to know now. I got, I got. We, we got to move through this. We have a lot more to do. We're, we're an just... hour in. Dodgers have an off day on the seventeenth, which is when the streak ends. Um, on the eighteenth, they have six to one loss to the Cardinals. That makes them fifty six and twenty eight. Uh, their first, they're two up on those Cardinals. We're closing fast. I was going to dive into something else on the Dodgers, but it's just not that important. New York ends the month sixty seven and thirty. They're up twelve games in their last fifty two games. They've gone. 44 and 8. Man. I mean, what was it fun to be a fan of another American League team at this no. point? Because I can't no. imagine that it was. Not, not at all. That's why to... they drew 300,000 people a year, these other teams. And the 50s are supposed to be this great year, too. Well, yeah, the great years if you live in New York, but if you're an American League fan anywhere else, it's just horrid. Yeah. Just yeah. Horrid. You got one decent year in Cle- Cleveland's okay. You know, the late 40s, early 50s, yeah. Cleveland's yeah, yeah. okay. Detroit is is could have their years semi viable. St. Louis Browns are a tire fire from the get. They become the Baltimore Orioles. They, they do become the Baltimore Orioles. So it's that's the White Sox seem pretty uh, irrelevant. Yeah, forever. Yeah. It was just, it was Yankees Yankees all the time at that point. Uh, so all right, moving forward to the month of August on the third of August, nineteen forty one. Joe DiMaggio goes zero for four. And that ends a streak of 74 consecutive games on base. Right, because there was a walk. He had a walk on the yeah. game that he, uh, f- game 57, right? Yep. He had a walk. Yeah, he had a walk. 74 consecutive games on base. He would have, boy, I tell you, Billy Bean would have eaten him up in Moneyball. Oh, I know. Get on base. Just get on base. Yeah, That's all his, we need. His OBP. Wow. It's Ted's yeah. August. Uh, on eight. 
two on the second of August. He goes two for three versus Detroit to to get to the four twelve mark. And then, and this is remarkable, he hit safely in twenty seven of the next thirty five games, and his uh, his average dropped five points. Wow. <laughs> I mean that, but that's how hard it is to hit four hundred. Yes. That's the thing we we keep forgetting. I mean, we're talking about the remarkable nineteen forty one season of Joe DiMaggio, and. You've outlined it brilliantly here, Johnny. It is it is remarkable. You cannot touch it on so many levels. But we kind of give a short shrift, we even we, all yeah. these years later, to hitting over 400. Right. And you can hit safely in all those games. And, you know, out of 35, you hit t- safely in 28, and your average goes down. It is sure. so hard to maintain a 400 batting average. But I'll tell you, we're not the only ones who gave who give Ted Williams a short shrift in this season. Not at all. Not at all. All the baseball writers did, too. Uh, DiMaggio starts to go cold, though. Uh, as we move into August, as we're still in August, he goes over 8 in a doubleheader versus the aforementioned St. Louis Browns, who were the worst team in baseball. There's absolute, they, were a, they were a minor league for the Yankees, essentially. Um, through that period of time, the Yankees would buy up every good player that made their way up through the Browns' farm system. Uh, you want to know how cold Joe went? His average dropped 25 points in 17 days. Wow. And then he sprains his ankle on the 19th, and he misses 20 days. He will not be with the team when they clinch the pennant on the 4th of uh, on the fourth of September, which, by the way, is the earliest any team has ever clinched the pennant. That, the 4th of September? Yeah. Can you imagine those American League games yeah. all oh. throughout September, probably <laughs> attended by, like, 200 people? Yeah. Yeah, and that's if you include the players. Yeah, you on know. that uh, the September fourth. No, I believe I believe uh, at that point uh, the New York City uh, police, if you were caught sh- uh, shoplifting or stealing of any sort, you were you were forced to go to a Yankee game. It's like go, get in there, because uh, I mean, just, God, talk about meaning nothing. Yeah, uh, but yeah, twenty five points in seventeen days, misses twenty days, so he really kind of steps off the stage at this point. Um, but you know what steps on the stage in August, Mark? NCAA football practice begins. Uh huh. Now games don't start till late September, but right. uh, some teams are starting practice in August. This guy, guys are heading back to school. Um, College football is pretty popular. Nineteen forty. It's very it's more, much more popular than the National Football League at yeah, this point. Certainly at that point. Yeah. yeah, at that point in time, but not uh, as popular as horse racing. Evidently, it was not as popular as horse racing. Uh, the Minnesota Golden Gophers are coming after their nineteen forty national championship uh so they're ranked number one coming into the season you know who's ranked number two uh let me give you a hint you know no i'm just no i uh, don't know you 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 love them notre dame nope sc nope closer uh, stanford stanford number two in the nation coming in to that uh into that season the uh the gophers are head coaches bernie bierman Bernie Beerman. Bernie Beerman is is the head coach. I think we have a photo of Bernie somewhere. He was a head coach from 1919 to 1950. Head coach at Montana, Tulane, Mississippi State. There's Bernie. Uh, Minnesota, Iowa pre-flight because he went. Uh, they had football teams that uh, were demonstration teams that played during the uh, during the war, and some of them actually played some college teams um, and some semi-pro. They were essentially semi-pro teams. But they were populated by NFL players and college players who who had been drafted. But uh, Bernie Bierman did that. Oh, by the way, um, also Bernie Bierman was the um, was the basketball coach at Montana, Mississippi State, and Tulane. You know, because yeah. 
Yeah, because because that's you know, what you did. Right. Because <laughs> that's what you did. Uh, he was a he's college Hall of Famer, 32 through 41 and 45 and 50 at Minnesota. He was 93, 35 and six. He won seven Big Ten. They were Big Nine a couple of years, by the way. Michigan State wasn't there. Uh, but they didn't call themselves Big Nine, though, did they? Uh, no, they, of course called, not. It was called the Big Ten. Uh, they've, they've never adjusted for how many teams they have. They, we won five national championships, and he had five undefeated, undefeated seasons. So the Gophers are yeah. at practice in August, um, getting ready to take on the, uh, getting ready to take on the, uh, try to uh, win a second title. I don't know why that sentence was as hard as it was for me, but uh, yeah. As I'm trying to read ahead at the okay. same time. I get it. I get uh, it. I was going to say is they're trying to defend their title. That's what I was looking for, trying to defend their title. Because I'm looking at the time here, and I'm just I'm just working my way through it as quickly as I possibly can. As mentioned, on the 4th of September, New York Yankees clinch the pennant. Um, and it is the, uh, the earliest that uh, the pennant was clinched. They'll end up winning the American League East by – or excuse me, the American League East. Mm. The American League by 17 games, right? And making the last 24 days of the season uh, just nonsensical. Yeah. And why would we play them? Um, one week later, on uh, yeah. the 11th doesn't, of September, doesn't matter. No, 11th of September, 1941, is when uh, Franklin Roosevelt announces that any German ships found in U.S. waters will be sunk on sight as we ratchet up the tension. This is when uh, Charles Lindbergh decides he's going to, he's going to, you know, I'm going to have something to say here. Lucky Lindy. He's now completely in full. In September? Season. Yeah, September 11th, the same day that, uh, as a response to um, FDR. And uh, Lindbergh says, this is a quote, the British Jews and FDR want to drag the country into war. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the end of Lindy as, a, as an American hero sort of disgraced and then the interesting story we find we find out because he's married to ann morrow Lindbergh, is an author and famous in her own right uh, apparently had an entire other family in germany google it people he literally had another wife and family that uh, his family in the states didn't know about so you know lindy living the yeah, high life defending defending his uh, german interests didn't <sighs> i want tell you to what get in the war just you know i'll tell you what because you know hitler for a long time, thought that Churchill or whoever is the prime minister, they would see the blitzkrieg. They would see what Germany was doing, and they would understand that you know Adolf Hitler did not want England. He didn't. No, want no. He, he admired England. He did. He didn't want to touch their no. empire necessarily, and so he just wanted to be left alone in Europe to just run roughshod over Europe. And he wanted he wanted free he wanted free navigation of the Atlantic, so he wanted to try to make a deal with uh, with uh, England. And um, which is one of the reasons that uh, Operation Sea Lion, which was the uh, invasion of England, never happened. That and Hermann Goering, friend of Charles Lindbergh, uh, thought that the Luftwaffe could bring uh, Britain to its knees and almost did. Um, six days later, Stan Musial makes his Major League Baseball debut on the 17th of September, 1941, uh, and shows... In the twelve games that he plays that year, Mark, yeah. what kind of player he's going to be? He hits. He goes twenty for forty-seven. Hits four twenty-six. Stan Musial, unbelievable. We have. If you're watching YouTube, you can see the card right there. It's his rookie card. He's he looks like he's ten, <laughs> and uh, I think he was twenty. Remarkable career for this guy. I, I think he. I think his last year was nineteen sixty-three. 
and was. was was part of uh, three World Series championships with the St. Louis Cardinals. But uh, just I missed it by a year. Just missed another. Right. Right. Exactly. And I just thought I thought uh, he was there for more this season. But that's amazing that it, he was a September call up for the Cardinals. Yep. He was a member of their pennant race. On the way to uh, his career, uh, and by the way, he would right away in 42, a year later, he finishes 12th in the MVP race, and he wins it in 43. Um, 36, I, I, and I have to bring it up because it's my favorite statistic in all sports, 3,630 yeah. career hits, 1,815 at home, 1,815 away. It's the best. 24-time uh, All-Star because there were a few years where they played two All-Star games. Yep. Yeah. Um, a three-time MVP, led the National League in batting average seven times, 17 times in the top 10. And the reason I bring uh, him up and the reason why there's another slide coming up that has a picture of Pete Rose is, to your point, he retired in 1963. His last hit went past Pete Rose, who was playing second base gotcha. at that time. And Pete Rose was born on the 14th yep. of March, 1941. How about that? So, yeah, just, just you know, so it, he played against Stan Musial, who had been in Major League Baseball his entire life. Yes. Yes. Which is, I love is it. Just crazy good. Also born in 41. Uh, Boog Powell down the road in Lakeland, Florida, actually. Dick Green, who we talked about when we talked about the A's. And uh, Glassjaw Al Downing. Uh, he's called Glassjaw because he got in a fight at one point and had his jaw broken. But he is fam- really famous, Mark, for something that happened 33 years later. 33 years later, Al Downing, all of my uh, friends, Brian Iscari, Tom Marino, all of my Dodger friends remember this uh, moment, and I certainly do, and celebrated it when I was in San Jose watching it on the telly. Uh, He was the pitcher of record. He was the one that gave up the home run 715 to Hank Aaron. That's right. Yeah, it was just a great, great moment. Although, you know, the Dodgers had the last laugh in 1974 because they – they won the they won the pennant that year. They did win the pennant that year. Should be mentioned too that uh, Houston Astros manager Dusty Baker is on deck uh, at that game at Fulton County Stadium that night. Um, there it so is interesting. You can win a drink at a, at a bar with that. All right, on the twenty fifth of September, Brooklyn wins the pennant. First time in twenty one years that Brooklyn that Brooklyn wins the pennant, and uh, it's. You, you know, it, there's so no more this, romantic this last there, year of peace. This there's no more romantic team than the Brooklyn Dodgers in all of baseball. I just want to say that it's the most romantic team in baseball. What was your What was your comment? You wanted to say, Mark? What, what did you Would you want to weigh in? Well, on? I want I wanted to say that in 1941, the last year of innocence, pastoral time, it was setting us up for post-war America, for the great. New York-centric post-war America. We've talked about this, John. If there was a time that you and I would like to go back to, we'd like to be about 22, 23 years old, to 1948 New York City. Oh, my God, yes. And if you think about it, once the war war is over and baseball gets itself settled back in, you know, from 47, from 1947 through most of the 50s, you know, the Dodgers... Yankees is a major, major force in Major oh, League absolutely. Baseball, and it is, and it is a ro- it is a romantic story. Yeah, and and uh, sprinkle in the Giants, sprinkle in the Giants there a yep. little bit as well. Uh, sure, and fifty one and fifty four as well. Yeah, it is within a, like a you know all these stadiums are within 
15 miles of each other, and that's where the center of baseball. In Ken Burns' baseball series, they call it the capital of baseball. In in uh, the 1950s, I do believe that a New York team was in every single World Series. They were. You're absolutely correct. So is that your deep dive? It is not my deep dive, but it has something to do with uh, the two of the teams we just mentioned. The Brooklyn uh, Dodgers were in uh, were in first place for 76 days of that uh, of that 1941 season. The biggest lead they ever had was four games. That was on the 15th of July, and the furthest behind they were was three on the 30th of July. It was a great pennant race in the National League. It deserves its own deep dive, no doubt, no doubt. Let's jump back to the great Ted Williams. By the end of August, Ted's hitting 407, but he was on his own cold streak. September 10th through the 24th, he uh, hits 270 in that period, which is fine baseball, but his, uh, his average dropped to 12 points. So at, the, at this point, the 24th, Red Sox have three games left to play. They're not going to catch anybody. Williams is hitting 401. And the talk was just don't play that final three yeah. games in Philadelphia against yeah. the lousy Philadelphia A's. Um, but Ted Williams, to his credit, Ted Williams yep. is a man. Ted Williams, he wasn't going to do that. He was paid to play baseball. He's going to play I'm a baseball. man. <laughs> Much better man. Than, uh, all right. So, with three games left. Game one, he goes one for four, and his average drops to three point. Three nine nine five five. Now that rounds up to four hundred. It does. So he would be, yes, a four hundred hitter. Well, it does. It rounds. It up. is. It, it, you're right. It absolutely rounds up. It's how it works. Um, most people thought he shouldn't play the doubleheader. I, doubleheader I agree. Day, final. Final. Final game of the season. Uh, and final and two he insisted on it, didn't he? Joe Cronin, who is the manager, and we just saw Joe's picture here. Joe Cronin uh, actually goes to Ted and says, look, there is no reason for you to play these games. You're a 400 hitter. Um, take 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 the day off. Go fishing early, because Ted was a great fisherman. Um, and William said himself, he goes, there was never a thought. There was never a thought that I was going to do that. If I couldn't hit 400 the right way, I wasn't going to do it. Um so he just basically then decides that uh, he's going to put all of this to rest. In the second game of the series, first game of the doubleheader, he goes four for five with three consecutive hits, gets a home run in that. Um, to have lost 400 at that point, he would have had to go 0 for 5 in the final game of the series. Instead, he goes two for three, ends up at 406. To your point, though, the roundup, he really ends up at 4057, but he finishes it. With uh, a 406 average, no one's hit 400 since. Yeah. Um, let's take a look at Ted Williams' final line for the 1941 season. In 143 games, he went 185 out of 456, 37 home runs, 124, 120, excuse me, RBI, 147 walks. He only struck out 27 times that season. Wow. And he finished second in the MVP voting. Yeah, seriously. And oddly, not uh, to Joe DiMaggio. Pete. Actually, to Tiny Casey. No, it was actually to Joe to Joe DiMaggio. He was 37 points behind DiMaggio. I think that race, that 1941 season, uh, uh, 
and the microcosm of the sort of race, if you will, between Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams really captures that entire relationship, not only between those two athletes, but between the, the Yankees and the Red Sox. And it also it encapsulates the relationship with the press. Yeah. The difference in the relationship with the press. J- DiMaggio, even though he's a quiet guy, yeah, very you quiet. know, did, didn't antagonize the press the way Ted Williams did. Right. Ted Williams did not like the media. And, no, and, 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 made, the, and, and the made, fans made no bones about it. When they booed him in Boston, he stopped tipping his cap when he would hit a home run. You know, it was the thing. Right. He'd tip your cap when you did that, and he never did it. He did it, I think, his rookie season, and then in the second season, he got booed for some reason, and he just would never do it. He admitted later in life, he goes, yeah, I was kind of stubborn, whatever. Uh, I mean, uh, even you know. his last one is last at no. bat. When he hits a home run, his last at bat, like in 1960 or 1960, 61. hits a yeah. home run, and he said he thought about it, and then – uh, in 1960, uh, the manager of the Red Sox then, whose name uh, escapes me, and, and um, to deduct two points from my score for the deep dive, um, he made Williams go back out because he hit it in the top of the inning, and he made him go back out into left field at the bottom of the ninth. And the minute he got out there, he replaced him with somebody else because he was trying to convince him, Ted, at least just do it when you come back. And he wouldn't do it. And in fact, he... he, he uh, uh, he walks by Pumpsy Green, uh, who, by the way, Pumpsy Green is the uh, Red Sox are the last team in Major League Baseball to integrate. Pumpsy Green is that guy, and he's playing second base, I believe, for the um, for for the Red Sox at that point. But so Williams goes out to left field for the bottom of the ninth, and then he gets called back in with a replacement. And Ted Williams, in in, in inimitable Ted Williams style, as he's coming by Pumpsy Green, he looks at him and goes, "You believe this bullshit? <laughs> That's just Ted Williams." In a uh, in, in a in nutshell, a, and and a, and a major reason, in my opinion, he didn't win the the uh, MVP. We talked about what a remarkable run Joe DiMaggio had, and there is no way to compare that season with anyone else's what Joe DiMaggio had. But conversely, there's no way to compare what Ted Williams did as well. It also shows, though, Mark. I mean, most of these MVP awards are usually best player on a good team. That's what it is, and that's I mean. And again, I think both you and I would would say the 56 game hitting streak is probably a hair's breadth more difficult than hitting a 406. Um, but to to that to that point, I think really why uh, why obviously his contentious uh, relationship with the press, but then this team finished 17 games out, and they were really never never a factor. Yeah. Yeah, in the season, that, that's what the MVP is, and I'll and you know the MVP is awarded usually after the postseason, and <laughs> we have said this many many times. You cannot convince me. You cannot convince me that the postseason doesn't have something oh, to do please. with it. Yeah, of course. Nineteen eighty eight, Kirk Gibson hit two seventy something right in the regular season. Wins the MVP. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Willie Stargell has a pretty mediocre 1979 season, but goes nuts in the World Series and somehow ties the legitimate MVP, Keith Hernandez, for that award. Are you besmirching baseball writers, Mark? The the paragon of virtue? I am. Our baseball writers. Because they dare dare to defend that as well. We've interviewed baseball writers that says, no, no, no. I think it was, what's the guy from, uh, what's the guy from Boston? Why is that? Bob Ryan? Bob Ryan, you hate Bob, Bob Ryan. Ryan. He's, he's had some uh, ish, he had some some personal issues. 
I don't know. I, I believe some domestic issues. Didn't, I don't. I don't believe Bob Ryan. Bob I, is it Bob Ryan? That was, constantly looks like he's you know had seventeen before he's interviewed. <laughs> yes, he's got that. He's that Irish Boston guy, you know yeah. that yeah. has you know like our like our friend Jack uh, is which you know, right. Which is funny redness. because I forgot the great quote that uh, that they said about uh, Billy Kahn when he lost the fight to Lewis because he all of a sudden he got overly aggressive. They said he got a little too Irish. He got a little too Irish. Kahn, yeah. the Irish fighter. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I completely agree about the postseason being. I don't care what anybody says. They're lying through their teeth um, on uh, September twenty ninth. The only player I, I can remember in my lifetime, and I'm so sorry, John, no, I'll let no, you go after this, but the only player I can remember in my lifetime that really was from a bad, bad team that won an MVP was Andre Dawson. They were they were they were like a fifth place team. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember any any others that were that uh, obvious, but I need yeah, to you're look right. Back at yeah. that. Uh, and look at that MVP race and see how you know, because that had to be he had to be just so head and shoulders above everybody else that to, to get that, because that, that just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me that that would happen. Not given that he didn't deserve it, but the, the, right. that's not the way that, that uh, award ends up getting voted for. All right, let's jump ahead. Cause uh, we are, uh, we're, we're pushing the bounds of our longest show ever. And I apologize in every way. Uh, September 29th, Joe Lewis beats Lou Nova in the six with a technical knockout. Here is our Broadway reference, Mark. Lunova went on to be an actor, and he was in the Broadway show The Happiest Millionaire in 1956. There's Lunova with actor Walter Pigeon, a favorite of mine. Um, so there you go. I've been an actor my entire adult life, as have you. We've never set foot on a Broadway stage. Um, other than if I don't know if you've got a backstage tour of Richard Rogers at some point or anything. But uh, Lunova, uh, the fighter, he, he's in The Happiest Millionaire. Happiest and like, Millionaire. And he's like fifth. On the, uh, 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 you know, on the marquee, even awesome. in this show. And there's like 20 people in the show, but there you go. All right, let's move on to the Subway Series. Yankees and Dodgers. Yankees had won four of the last five World Series. World Series games, Mark, they'd won 13 of their last 14 and 28 of their last 31. Again, they ruin all of our fun. The New York Yankees ruin everyone's fun. Game one goes you know, sort of according to chalk. Uh, Yankees win the game three to one. Red Ruffing, who's a guy who's really a forgotten, a forgotten player, he wins for the Yanks. Um, he, he comes up in this uh, because he's the first hitting coach for the New York Mets in 1962. He joins Casey Sengel's staff, and he's the first. Uh, uh, Pitching coach, excuse me, I said pitching coach for the New York Mets. The staff had a 5.04 ERA, which was the worst in the majors. Red then retired. Um, Joe DiMaggio goes hitless, by the way, continuing the cold streak. He goes hitless in game one, but the Yankees do take that game three to one. Uh, that was the first of October. Second of October, one day later, the Dodgers win over the Yankees. Uh, DiMaggio goes 0 for 3 once again with one base, base on balls. Dolph Camilli puts Brooklyn up 3 to 2 in the sixth with a single. Camilli, an all star player, one of the guys who getting him to Brooklyn, one of the reasons that Brooklyn had the success that they did. Again, we go back to Larry McPhail, who was a terrific general manager. I believe he won the MVP that year. I believe he did as well. Camilli, yes. out yep. of San Francisco. Yes. Uh, then, then ends up dying in San Mateo right, right around 1997. My, my, I just want to say this, Gramps, my grandfather, he, born in San Francisco in 1909, two years after Dolph Camilli. All right. Camilli uh, has that amazing career. 
comes back to San Mateo. That's where uh, my grandfather lived and passed away in the exact same year. So they and they went to rival high schools just two years apart in San Francisco. Yep. Dolph well, Camilli. Dolph thanks, Camilli. For, thanks for allowing me to talk about not only San Francisco, but my family in San Francisco because of your deep dive, John. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, Dolph Camilli had a brother named Frank Campbell. He fought under the name of Frank Campbell, and you mentioned it earlier, Mark. Um, Max Baer killed him in a fight in 1930. He got a cerebral hemorrhage after uh, losing a fight to, to Max Baer. So some more interesting uh, information, including the stars of 41. Game three, Yankees, Dodgers. Um, all the runs in this game were scored in the eighth inning. Talk about your pitcher's duel. Uh, two to one, the Yankees beat the Dodgers. DiMaggio goes two for four to get off the schneid. Hadn't had a hit in, in the series. Um, and, and again, this this was a scoreless game until the eighth. And Hugh Casey comes on in relief. He's the, he's the goat of this game. Comes on in relief uh, in a scoreless game eighth, and he gets the four straight singles and two runs, and that's all it takes is for poor Hugh Casey. He's a hard luck guy during this uh, during this series. He, he really is a hard luck guy and a good pitcher. And, and you can tell, you know, you can tell by this baseball card back yeah. in the day. If if you're just listening to the podcast, tune into our YouTube and uh, scroll all the way. You know, I don't know, two three hours in, <laughs> you can see Hugh Casey's death stare. Yeah, he's just not happy. He just <laughs> knows what he's he looks like. For. You can see it. You can see it. You can see it. it he it's... knows his fate. He just knows his fate. Yeah, it's uh, it, it gets worse. Two to one Yankees in the series on October the fifth, game four, and this is the this is the game that really most people think decides the series. Um, Brooklyn coming off of obviously a heartbreaking loss in game three. In game four, um, it's four to three in uh, with Brooklyn two out in the top of the ninth, and Hugh Casey. Hey, hey, Hugh Casey's coming on. Uh, Hugh Casey strikes out Tommy Henry. But one of the oldest rules in Major League Baseball is the passed ball on the third strike. Catcher Mickey Owen drops the ball. doesn't drop the ball. gets behind him. Henrik gets to first. The Yankees uh, rail off a bunch of hits, score four in the inning, and end up winning the game seven to four. DiMaggio goes two for four and scores a run. And it really, this is really where it ends for, uh, for Brooklyn. Um, it's a, it's a tight game five, but they really felt like they had the, they, it was it. They had won the game. Yeah. With Casey's, with Casey's strikeout. So boy, talk about it. talk about a hard luck. Gives him a four straight hits on the fourth and then the dropped pass ball by yeah. the catcher to lose um, a game that, uh, that they, that they should have won by all accounts. Right. And I mean, you could argue that they should have won game three as well. Yeah, and yeah, that's four, a, and then it's a tight game five. So that's a that's a much closer series than than winning in five would indicate. Right. It really does. So we move along to game five a couple of days later. Yankees, uh, Dodgers, Yankees end up winning this. Tiny Bonham uh, has a complete game four hitter. He gives up one uh, walk and one hit after the third. Joe DiMaggio goes one for four um, in, in the series, strikes out a couple of times, and Brooklyn for the series. Mark. Hits 182, and that really is the story of the series. They hit wow. under the Mendoza line in wow. that series, and they lose. Though for folks in Brooklyn, just they 20 years since they've been in a World Series and won a pennant, and it looked like wow, the 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 future is nigh. Uh, and in any case, uh, so that's your 1941 World Series after an amazing NL pennant race. 
the two records that will probably never be broken in baseball. Yep. Yankees uh, securing the pennant on the 4th of September, making the last 24 days of the season moot. Um, boy, I, I certainly hope somebody brought that up when they decided to expand and expand the playoffs, thinking, eh, we lost a whole month of anybody paying any attention to baseball because of that. No, hey, I, you know, think, I think that's a big part of the wild card. It's like you keep as many teams involved as long as possible. Yes, oh, and absolutely. And stays attendance stays vibrant. I need to jump back because I missed one thing in September. Uh, on the 27th of September, the Minnesota Golden Gophers that we'd mentioned, they win their first game. And, and, and good for them going out to the coast and playing Washington in Seattle. And they beat the Huskies 14-6 to for their first win. We now move into October with, with Minnesota. Uh, three games in the month of October. On the 11th, they beat Illinois 34-6. to on the 18th, they beat Pitt 39 to nothing. On wow. that same day, Hideki Tojo is named Prime Minister of Japan. Uh, spoiler alert, doesn't end well. Uh, on the 25th, they beat the third-ranked Michigan Wolverines 7 to nothing. It's their eighth straight win over Fritz Kreisler's Michigan team. They win the, their, their eighth little brown jug in a row. They'll win their ninth in uh, 1942. Um, since 1942, though, against Michigan, they've gone, uh, Michigan's gone 57, 12 and one against Minnesota, Minnesota, who've won three of the last 25 games against the Michigan Wolverines. Moving into November, uh, Minnesota plays number nine, Northwestern on the first winning nine to seven. Um, by the way, that seven points is the most points they've given up for the season up to this point. They'd wow. given up less than seven points in that season. Uh, Bernie, they, Bernie Beerman, they dropped to number two. Because of that nine to seven victory, um, and then they beat Nebraska nine to nothing. And on the fifteenth, they go to Iowa and they beat, uh, I believe, Niall Kinnick and the uh, future Hall of Fame, uh, excuse me, future Heisman Trophy winner. I believe he wins in forty four, forty two, forty four. Should have checked that one out. Uh, this one, the uh, de- defense just collapses in this game. Mark, they they only win thirty four to thirteen. Oh my goodness, they yeah. let them, they let the team down. Trouble, 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 trouble brewing. Sure, in Minnesota, and on the twenty second, they beat Wisconsin forty one to six to finish their undefeated season. Once again, they only gave up double digits one time. Here's their uh, here's their line on the season. They outscored their opponents one hundred eighty six to thirty eight. They had three shutouts. Uh, only one team scored over ten points. That was Iowa thirty four to thirteen, and they win the national championship in college football. November still twenty seventh. You mentioned it. Joe DiMaggio wins the and American they, and League. And they go MVP. on to win how many since then? None. They they go the Minnesota Golden Gophers go on to win how many since uh, that 1941 season? None. They they don't win anymore. That that's it. I'm sorry. That's zero. That'd be none. Okay. Fair enough. Ah, Joe DiMaggio wins the AL MVP on the 27th. Dolph Camilli, to your point, wins the NL MVP because MVPs go to the best player on the teams that play in the World Series. True, that's true. Um, One day later, the Japanese Naval Strike Force sails out of Hiroshima Bay. Again, not going to end well. Just saying. Move forward to December. May want to rethink that. Yeah, might want to rethink that move. Uh, in December, obviously, on the 7th, Pearl Harbor is bombed. On the 8th, Franklin Roosevelt Hang on, declared. hang on. What happened on the 7th? Uh, Pearl on. Harbor. Google it. I'm sorry? Google it. 
Don't watch the movie. It's garbage. One of the oh worst gosh. movies of all time. What a piece of crap that it, movie is. The, the reason I wanted to see that movie so bad was because of the 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 bomb cam, if yeah. you will. Yeah. That that there was a camera on the bomb, sort of a, a la Doctor Strange level. Although right. this is this right. is uh, World without War. Slim Pickens riding it down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and it looked so cool, and it was so yeah. like, oh my gosh, here we go. We're going to really get into this, and then it, and then it Horrible. was that movie. Horrible. On the ninth, Bruce Boo Smith of Minnesota wins the Heisman Trophy. Again, because, you know, goes to the best player on a really good team. Uh, but uh, Boo, uh, Boo Smith was a great, great football player. Played a couple of years in the National Football League as well. Speaking of the National Football League, on the 14th, the Bears beat the Packers 33-14 to in the first playoff, divisional playoff in the history of the NFL. They both finished 10-1 and and had to play a playoff game. Uh, which wow. Chicago, yeah, 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 yeah. Prior That's to that, pretty. never happened. And hadn't Chicago won in 1940 by just destroying the Redskins? Yeah. I mean, I just need to, I'm just adding context Seven, yep, 73 to the to end nothing. of your show. They beat John, them 73 to nothing. Yes. Yeah. The yeah. worst ever. Right. Um, on the 21st, four days before Christmas, the Bears play the Giants for the for the uh, NFL championship. Bears win 37 to nine. The Bears led nine to six at the half. Uh, New York uh, opening drive of the second half. Uh, they made, kicked a field goal to make it nine to nine, and the Bears scored four unanswered touchdowns after that. First team in the NFL to, in the National Football League to win consecutive titles. They won five total in that period: twenty-seven, thirty-two, thirty-three, forty, and forty-one. And thus, we all get up uh, four days later on Christmas morning, have our last Christmas of. There aren't, there aren't going to be any war stories again until early into 42. And that is 1941, one of the most remarkable seasons in sports. I'd like to call it a deep dive. It's sort of a medium dive because I could have gone so much deeper. But it took me an hour and 40 minutes to get through that. Well, there was a lot of banter, which I think there was, was banter. There's a lot yeah. of banter. And uh, and you're right. You could have done four volumes on this and could have done it all on the NL Bennett race. Just fascinating stuff. Uh, just a wide breadth of fascination, not just baseball, not just college football, but boxing, horse racing, obviously everything happening in the world. You didn't even mention, you, you barely mentioned uh, invading Russia. Hitler I did. I barely Russia. mentioned it. I also didn't mention that Bobby Cox was born in, uh, I missed that one, and uh, I believe it was April of 41, too. I think he and Ted Williams, same age. And I believe Paul Simon was born in 41. There you go. None Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? There you go. So full circle, full yep. circle. There it is. Well, There's deep dive number five. Deep dive five. Congratulations, Johnny. Well done out of you. Uh, a week from today will be deep dive six, and it will be on the Giants and the Dodgers, the rivalry, the best rivalry, if you ask me, in all sports. And I know I've, I've had lots of arguments with this with John Pelkey and, and the like. Um, certainly the oldest rivalry in, in Major League Baseball. And uh, here it is. This is this is one of the books I'm going to read. The Giants and the Dodgers. Basically, going to focus John on uh, anywhere from six to eight key events. Key events. Okay. In Giants Dodgers history, we'll we'll try and confine it to that. You can imagine what one of the major ones will be. A few of the major ones uh, involve pennant races, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how each team has acted as spoilers. For the other, yeah. throughout the course of of, of the um, 
of the decades. And it's, it's fascinating yeah. how even if they're not competing for a pennant, how the, the Dodgers can spoil the Giants' plans. The Giants can spoil the Dodgers' plans. There's a few of those. And then there's some individual incidences as well that we'll get into. It should be a lot of fun. It's Giants, Dodgers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about maybe eight, maybe six to eight events, Okay. as I, as I mentioned before. And I'm going to try and have you know an even amount favor the Giants, an even amount favor the Dodgers. I'm going to do everything <laughs> I can. That. To yes, to be fair and balanced okay. Okay. with this Giants Dodgers because it really is the record of them playing each other. I mean, they've played each other two thousand five hundred times over yeah. the course, and I think it's separated by eight or nine games. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and then you know they both moved to California in the same year. It's right. just it, it it really is. It's 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 not the best rivalry in sports. We all know that. Um, well, all of us, but you apparently. Um, but it it is it is an awfully good one. I what also want to point- what would you say is better, Duke Carolina, uh, Ohio State Michigan. Maybe Yankees, Yankees, Red Sox is such a tough one, though, because there's so many periods of time where hammer and nail. Re- yeah, they weren't relevant. Hammer right. and there nail. Been a lot of that with the Dodgers and the Giants, too. I mean, there have been those periods. A lot of that with Ohio State and Michigan as well. And mm, not as much. Um, Does anyone really, really care about that outside of you know, upper Midwest. <laughs> yes. yes, they do. I should point this out, though. The, uh, the Giants, when they were in New York, they played in the cavernous polo grounds. And what yes. I, one of the things I forgot to mention was when you talk about boxing, boxing was one of the favorite sports. The Khan-Lewis fight was in the polo grounds. They had 60,000 people wow. there for that fight. Dang, you're right. So it's like, yeah, it was like the Beatles. Oh my God, yeah, just crazy. You can get I just, I, I just want to remind everyone. We talked about Hank Aaron today breaking Babe Ruth's record. Willie Mays played in the cavernous. You mentioned it, John. Cavernous polo. Cavernous. <laughs> then he moved and played in Candlestick Park, which was yeah, the worst not hitting park in in the swirling way. Horrible, horrible. Terrible. Yep. And where where did where did Hank Aaron play his his ball? Uh, well, it, when when in Atlanta. Ball? When, when Atlanta, when they left Milwaukee, it, the place called the Launching Pad. And I don't think County Stadium in Milwaukee was, a, I think it was pretty much of a hitter's park as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Giants, I, Willie, Dodgers coming up. Willie, Willie Mays, better baseball player than Hank Aaron. All around. The, Hank Aaron's one of the all-time greats. But Billy, but Willie Mays had more. He, he was you a could, five-tool player. And, you and, could and make Hank an argument not, next to Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, the best player. Ever. Yeah. Because Hank Aaron was a much better base runner, much runner, faster guy early in his career. You know, most people remember him when he when he was older in his career. And he was an absolutely phenomenal baseball player. Um, but he he didn't have all the tools that Willie Mays did. No, come on, absolutely not. Ooh, man, I tell you what, I am. I need I need a half a bottle of scotch. And uh, wow, that was just a lot. Thank you, David Lowe, saying it was a fantastic show. I'm so glad he enjoyed it. Um, I gave the Cubs a little bit of love for having the first uh, first organ at a major league baseball park. In is certain- David Lowe a big Cubs fan? He is. Yeah, he went to uh, uh, orthodontic school at Northwestern. Wow, absolutely! So that. huge. Cup. He and he said David David Lowe, great uh, stage actor, friend of ours. Uh, one yeah. of, just a great guy. Yet um, another another good friend of ours, John. That has yeah. has so much more success in life oh. well, where have we set the bar are you kidding an infinite capacity for making a bad situation worse leo de rocher our patron saint <laughs> he really is but david blow we have great and people in the theater always ask him you know, where's your favorite place in the world and he's always said uh, wrigley field and i i completely understand that completely understand that so there it is the longest deep dive ever my god longest after further review show ever oh. 
And I, Sorry, I so it was one page shorter than the than the last my last deep dive. It, you know, it's it's a work in progress, folks. We're still trying to determine if this two show a week thing is working. This once a week deep dive thing. Any any comments you have, you can email us at podcastafr at gmail dot com. And in the course of all this, we're we're trying to rehearse ahead of time. We're trying to get the powerpoints done. You know, in a in a in a legitimate, clean, yeah. easy way. We had and, a rehearsal. We've never rehearsed before. We've had a rehearsal. Yeah, you, you and I have written this stuff together, and we've maybe put some PowerPoint together, and then we've just dove dove right in. Yeah. Not today. And the next thing we have to, you know, approach and tackle is editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, because I also think, John, that the banter is is part of the fun. And mm-hmm. if 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 it's if it's just like you were saying, what people were, we were just reading wikipedia in the in the first few deep dives we don't want we don't want that narrative i did not ever and you now we use wikipedia for a couple of things but i did actually read books and i i paid for i'm I'm not making any money i'll never make another penny as long as i live my lifetime earnings are set look at what i've made up to the age of 56 i'll never make another dollar but i was spending money because i wanted that show to be better and here's the other thing mark unilaterally you came to that john two shows a week no longer three and i said mark that's that's denying the AFR audience, or as we like to call them, your family and elementary school friends, high school friends. Um, it's denying them after further review. And people have complained. There have been complaints, as you know. There, um, there, there have been people that have said they're they're sad at this decision. It's still a work in progress. We're still determining whether or not we're doing this. And again, it's not a nothing's unilateral. <laughs> Nothing is unilateral. We're going to make an AFR commercial come and, well, and John, in theory. In theory, in theory, we are as well. So we'll see. We'll see if this this works out. Johnny. Well, I just I just and felt like three shows a week. I just felt like you know if if, if you're going to take a show away unilaterally, um, that uh, I'm 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 going to give them the same amount of after further review. I'm just going to pack it into two uh, two shows. I'm going to quote is- the great. I'm going to quote the not great and highly disliked Lou Holtz. Uh, we're going to get three hours of practice in, no matter how long it takes. So there you go. That's, there it is. That's, that's, there it is. Two hour after further review show. Thank you very much. 1941. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Dane Becker, if you're listening. Awaits. Mark will be calling you. <laughs> Dane Becker awaits. Dane Becker. I might actually see Dane Becker tomorrow. So, you know, if you want me to ask him what his deep dive is going to be uh, in two weeks, I'll, you know, I'll, he'll let you know. Probably, right. probably, probably something succinct and uh, entertaining, which mm-hmm. this may have been neither of. All right. All right. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, everybody uh, and everyone else. Uh, thanks so much for uh, for listening. And we'll, we'll we'll try to edit our deep dives. But this this is this is what you get. We'll be back on Monday to talk about things in sports with actual live sports going on more yeah. than live sport going on. And maybe some more information about uh, football, who there have been big decisions made. We haven't even talked about. We'll be back on Monday for Mark Ferrer and Jeff Taylor. I am John Pelkey. Thanks so much. We'll be back on Monday with more after further review. Take care, everybody.